0: Welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest and coach Tracy Zimmer. So she's down in uh, Florida. She works with a wide range of teams within the SEC, and we're honored to have her on the show today. Coach, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Awesome. So anyone that kind of gets into this field, they they have a unique journey and stories, both how they got into training as a professional, um, but then also deciding to make it a career. Could you kind of just walk us through kind of how you got to where you're at today?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm from the Philadelphia suburbs and I played lacrosse at Temple University and I went to Temple thinking I wanted to be a physical therapist and quickly had exposure to a strength coach. And, you know, over my four years at at Temple, we had uh, a lot of, a lot of changes. So got to see like three different strength coaches, but quickly changed from sort of pre-health professions to exercise science. Um, And for me, like getting in that environment was uh, definitely reassuring because I I knew that I wanted to work with healthy populations and you're not necessarily guaranteed that with physical therapy. So um, quickly changed, like I said, to exercise science. Um, And as a collegiate lacrosse player, I couldn't complete my internship in season. So sort of lucked out where, um, you know, I worked at the University of Pennsylvania as an intern the summer after I finished uh, my senior spring of playing lacrosse. And uh, at the time, Penn was transitioning from a 5,000 square square foot weight room to a 20,000 square foot weight room. And with that transition, they were allowed to bring on a part-time coach. So I did work my way in from uh, a part-time intern to part-time coach. Uh, And then as it worked out, somebody left a year later and I I got a full-time position. But I will say that um, Ivy League, as you know, a lot of teams, not not a ton of coaches. So I, I joined a staff. I was one of four strength coaches. Uh, for 33 varsity sports teams. So we all had a lot of responsibilities there. Um, And within that, just to live in Philadelphia, you know, a large city, I I worked other jobs to be able to have, uh, you know, the job that I wanted as a strength coach. So uh, I spent nine nine years at Penn and uh, a little bit uh, probably unsuspecting, uh, but I was part of a staff that got let go. So you hear about this more often in sports like basketball or football, where, you know, strength coaches are tied to sport coaches. Um, And I believe it was definitely a unique situation where we had some administrative changes and, you know, I was one of uh, three people that got let go and combined the the three of us had 25 years experience there. So um, a bit of a shock and um, it just worked out that through some of the coaching connections that I had and through uh, the lacrosse world and tech world, um, I got connected with somebody in the NFL and I had actually applied for the Bill Walsh Diversity Coaching Fellowship. So, um, you know, circle back 2019 in the spring after winning the uh, uh, Ivy League Championship with men's lacrosse, um, you know, at track championships, we all get let go. Uh, two months later, I ended up getting a, a position with the Atlanta Falcons as a seasonal intern. So uh, while I was there, you know, I'm pretty aggressively trying to find a, a full-time coaching job in the college setting. Knowing that that was a temporary position, and I worked my way, um, you know, at when I was with the Falcons, I interviewed here at Florida, and you know, just it just aligned where I had some of the I was sort of at the right place at the right time, and ended up getting hired to work here for uh, lacrosse and both men's and women's swimming. So here I'm responsible for uh, 44 lacrosse players, about 70 swimmers, Um, and then I also decided to teach a class last semester, so added that to my plate, but. Um, love, love the coaching aspect of being here at an elite
0: level. Now, I got to ask going back into your, your Ivy times, as, as you alluded to, both of us have some experiences. And I would say to anyone listening, if you haven't worked in the Ivy experience, uh, you don't know it's different. I mean, you can legitimately walk in and have someone who's going to be the future president uh, of the United States, or Supreme Court Justice, or you know, doctor. Um, so they're hyper intelligent and gifted in that aspect. But maybe from a biomotor standpoint, you're kind of sitting there going, "Okay, what's your skill? What's your skill set or talent that got you here?" Um, and typically, I found more likely than not, if you explain to them why and what you were doing, that was a big internal driver for them. And and did you find working with such a wide range of athletes, obviously? I know we we do audio only, but I'm smiling as you say that, because when was the last time you read a training manual for fencing or for who knows, whatever, did you feel like that helped you as a coach, giving that exposure and range that you can use in the future? Or was it kind of too much with, you know, little resources?
1: Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of people shrug their shoulders and say like, oh, I don't really want to work with the fencing team or squash team. But, you know, given the chance to work with any athlete, uh, you're going to learn a lot about um, how, how people move differently, what's important to those athletes in terms of developing whatever qualities are going to allow them to be successful. Um, and it also forces you to be a better coach because you've got to think outside the box. You know, a lot of teams like squash or fencing where they're not, they don't have a ton of exposure prior to college to a, a weight room setting. So they might not be thinking that this is a place that's really going to help, help them excel at their sport. So I think Um, One, like you you mentioned, having kids sort of ask why or being able to explain why um, that made me a better coach because I was constantly having to explain what we were doing. um, And, you know, they would definitely question you on it if they didn't think it was going to help. So um, that, in addition to having limited hours in the Ivy League, um, you've really got to maximize your time. So constantly evaluating is what I'm doing, you know, going to allow these athletes to make the kind of progress that we want to see in the limited time that we have.
0: Yeah, and and I know you also mentioned working with the lacrosse program um, at at Penn. Some of the best battles we ever had was against your team. And I think about just the physicality and um, just some of the names without getting into specifics. I really felt like that relationship and that rivalry was probably one of the best things for the conference. Cause when people would say, Oh, you know, the Ivy league, they're small or it's not the same as ACU. We used to go in and just absolutely hammer people. And I mean, you had some sledgehammers on that program that were just a real pain to deal with. How did you go about, Uh, in a sport that again, is kind of high profile at that school, but there wasn't a ton of resources. How did you go about kind of crafting your approach towards that? And with such a high level success and anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, go back and look at some of those games and some of those highlights. It was probably one of the most influential time periods in modern lacrosse where, you know, the addition of the shot clock and, and things like that really put a premium on athleticism. How did you go about designing that program or what was your thought process?
1: Yeah, for sure. The, the Yale Penn rivalry rivalry was, um, fun, fun to be a part of. Uh, I think that it starts with the coaches, you know, if the sport coaches have, um, certain standards that are set, it allows me as a strength coach to sort of reinforce those standards. And I think in terms of inner squad competition, we were always looking for, you know, people to sort of step up and the guys who saw men specifically who saw, um, Greater results in the weight room, right? Allowed them to be more resilient on the field. And I think over time, like the, the competition showed up in the weight room, not just on the field. So whether we were benching or, um, you know, the coaches want us to test uh, max pull ups, max push ups, there were some other numbers in there vertical jump, um, but everybody always sort of competing, regardless of whether they were in the weight room or just on the field.
0: Yeah, and I and I thought, you know, I'd love to get your opinion as well on the on the female side, because that was something that I know we have a mutual friend and Coach Legro going through, being able yeah. to explain, you know, why it's important, giving the buy-in, but then to see that tangible results. I, I believe it was in 2020 or 21 for our program to actually get the women in the top 25, like to get a national ranking. And I think too often you'll hear coaches talk about, well, this is my plan, this is my program. But I think anytime you're working with a team you need to take a 360 degree kind of assessment of where everyone's at, but then build, you know, your training into that, build your culture, uh, but starting with the people and the relationship. So from when you were a player, but then also as you coach, what were some of the intricacies that, you know, you kind of focused on?
1: You know, I think that lacrosse, it's, it's still one of the fastest growing sports and as it's evolved, you know, you mentioned the, the shot clock was in addition um, limiting possession in the midfield to a certain time. And I think, as the rules change, you sort of have to evolve with that as a coach um, because the players are always looking for, I hate to use this, but sports specific things. And if you can at least communicate with your athletes, Hey, this is skill specific. You know, what we do in the weight room uh, lifting is a separate skill and whatever we do has to enhance your ability to display your sport skills. So for me, uh, I think the biggest thing that I've done, uh, which has definitely changed from earlier on in my career is giving athletes the autonomy to choose exercises that they think are gonna help them, right? And that takes time with obviously knowing that your athletes are good movers with um, you know some some of the basic lifts. And you know whether it's a, a clean, a squat, a press variation, um, but having seen them both through a fall, right? Now we just started our, our spring season here, pre-season, and based on everything we did in the fall, they've got choices, right? I don't care if you're gonna squat or trap or deadlift, you pick what you think is gonna help the most. And now being at a place where um, you know, the, the group training is smaller. Um, I, I train, you know, two separate sessions for lacrosse and it makes it easier to, for, to get individualized coaching that way. And I also have an assistant here, which I didn't have previously. So I think as strength and conditioning evolves, there's
0: resources that
1: programs have that will allow for, for better programming and, and coaching in general.
0: How do you walk that fine line between I went on Instagram and I saw this really cool exercise coach. Therefore I want to do that. And while I agree with you on the, even just a little bit of autonomy in a program speaks volumes to your confidence as a coach and creating buy-in, you, there You is a, a finesse that you have, um, you know, to be able to you know, give give what they want, um, but also sneaking in what they need. If I'm a young coach and I'm listening to you say that, I don't just open the floodgates and say, everybody do what you want. How do you go step-by-step step kind of going through that or even earning that process uh, final end point?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think uh, early on,
0: with freshmen,
1: uh comes down to coaching, and if you've, you've established a a good rapport with your athletes who are more veteran on the team, you know the younger players are looking to those athletes because that's the position that they want to be in, right? They want to be the the junior starter who's an all American, and if you you know have I guess established that sort of like I say go back to like inner squad competition, but the weight room is a place where if you see results in here, okay, it should allow you to to be better out on the field, right. Without taking away. Um, I love lifting. Not everybody does. And I think that's part of the fun of it for me is seeing kids slowly, uh, realize that this is helping me. And I I want to actually be in the weight room because it's not, that hasn't always been the case, especially with with
0: female athletes. So we get coaches that call us all the time and they say, well, that's good for coach, but she's got, you know, I don't have the resources. I don't have the, the buy-in, you know, I'm basically handed this, program and chaos. Cause there's a lot of transfer, especially at the mid tier and the lower tier where you might be handed a new team. You might have an athlete that over four years has four coaches. So I love your point about taking a hot second to go back. What have they done? Go back and see what has worked and do that historical look back and ask the athletes. I, I like deadlifts. However, the men's lacrosse team had a horrific history with deadlifts. So mm-hmm. guess what? I wasn't, you know, trying to force that. I found another way to activate the tissues, recruit the patterns. But if I didn't do that and I just said, no, we're going to do it anyway. I don't know if that's the best approach. So I just, again, I, I try to get coaches that are kind of out the tip of the spear in the profession to kind of walk us through your thought process that if I'm, I'm pretend right now I'm going to hand you the best blank sport team. Um, but they just, they've never started lifting before they have maybe a bad culture issue or they don't believe in the weight room. They're gamers, uh, rather than buying into just all this, uh, lifting stuff. How do you even go about framing your plan of attack for that?
1: Yeah, I think starting out, you got to keep it simple, right? Um, a few basic movements, uh, I think we're fortunate to have more time here than I did at Penn, obviously fewer, fewer teams um, and the ability to train teams in groups. Um, and really comes down to like, I, I don't have to use the full hour, right? Am I accomplishing what I need to accomplish with the, the time that that I have? Right. Just because I have an hour, I don't need to, to check the box for the full hour. Um, and I think that's too is it helps athletes become more efficient in general, right? Like saying that I don't need to do all of this crazy stuff that I see on the internet. Okay. We might not, not have those things that you're, you see in the YouTube videos or in, you know, the Instagram posts. Um, and it, is it, is it going to allow us to be better on the field with whatever we're doing in here? I, I really think you don't have to use all the tools in your toolbox, right? It's great that you have them, but less is more. And I think that's sort of the, the approach that I've taken.
0: Couldn't agree more. Too often people come in, try a little bit of everything because that's what they think the expectation is just to make people happy, but what are we trying to do in development? And we joke, sometimes the best analytics in today's environment is attendance. And then were they intentional? Can your athletes explain to you in four months what the expectation is? And what we do in season is different than out of season, a starter versus a developmental player and and being able to articulate that. I often find a lot of young coaches are struggling to find their identity because they're trying to be someone else, just kind of be you and be good at the fundamentals which is harder than most people think. So, and I'd imagine that as you got to Florida, you mentioned time was a big thing, resources, another walk me through what were some of the other kind of major changes in your coaching style and, or, you know, assets that you were able to bring to Florida to make an impact. Cause now you kind of set your sights on an even, you know, bigger program.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess some of the changes, um, you know, I, I previously had access to force plates here, you know, I, my first year we didn't have access and then we did. And, you know, like, so I think just going back to understanding like basic periodization and being able to plan with or without whatever technology you might have, because you can't rely on that, right? At the end of the day, it comes back to your knowledge as a coach and again, getting the experience to, to know and, and see things in different situations, um, because you're going to you're gonna encounter all kinds of, of situations, whether it's an athlete with an injury or an athlete with class complex, or there are, there are so many things that. Could be limiting factors, um, but here we have a pretty big support team. Whether it's dietitians, mental health counselors, or athletic training staff, you know, is at all of my lifts, all all practices. So, I think that it's a, a bit more unique here. Where I don't want to say we're siloed, but each sport has their own support team. You know, I just left a swim meeting, and there was fifteen of us in there. I think that's unique to where we are and the kind of resources that we have for these athletes.
0: And you bring up a great point. There are way more shareholders um, at these institutions now, uh, basically almost like a specialist where as a strength coach, you used to have to be the contractor who knew every domain. And I think about building a house, you had to do the foundation, you had to pour the concrete, you had to everything down to picking out the furniture in the living room. Well, suddenly now you show up on a job site or you show up to the weight room and you might have a world expert in sleep, a world expert in nutrition which has really changed the role of the strength coach because for the most part, the strength coach was the main, I don't want to say it was like the conduit to the off season where it was a black box of they're not under my control. Uh, international listeners, we have a thing called Kara hours, which is a finite amount of time that you're allowed to develop them. And I can't remember with the Ivy League, whether it was six or eight, but it was not a lot. Um, and then the in season, you were competing with time. for for coaching. And so the strength coach really is kind of that liaison. But now, how do you guys go about structuring that where you have 15 people in the room, but if all 15 are talking, you could run into a situation of too many cooks in the kitchen. What's that structure like? And as it relates to your role and your role with the head coach there?
1: You know, I think it just allows everyone to to really focus on their job when you understand, hey, we do have all of these resources. You know, if, if an athlete brings me something that, um, would be better suited to discuss with somebody else in the staff. You know, I will let that person on staff know, and you know, instruct the athlete like, hey, we've got this great resource for you. Why don't you go chat with you know somebody in nutrition or somebody in mental health, or you know, get an athlete training room so you can focus more on this from a recovery standpoint. But we've uh, got the resources. It's it's made my job easier because I can really just focus on what I'm doing here in the weight room and out on the field with the athletes, or um, you know, go go watch more practices for swimming.
0: Yeah. Now, did you notice that in the NFL as well? Cause I, I want to talk about that transition because going from Ivy to NFL back into collegiate, was there part of you that was looking at going the professional route? Was there a part of you uh, that may have looked at the tactical route? Cause in that time frame, I do believe that like H2F and some of the contractors, mm-hmm. there was something like 1800 job, hi- uh, job postings and hirings. So that must've been a temptation. Why did you choose to come back into the college?
1: Uh, you know, I think like you have the greatest ability to transform people in this setting. You know, you've you've got four years, but they're they're very malleable, right? You're exposed to so many different things, and um, it's it's a very short time period. But from freshman to senior year, the the changes that you see in athletes, right? Uh, the way we build so many things, whether it's like confidence, actual you know physical. We've talked about creating like a suit of armor, um, but I think that this is a place where kids can sort of find themselves as opposed to the the professional setting where you've got, uh, it's more of a business and, you know, you're dealing with players who are really, it's sort of in charge. Um, and then obviously other stakeholders, but, um, totally different approach where here I'm able to build different relationships with the athletes and sort of see them evolve and, and progress over the four
0: year career. Now that you have more bandwidth, Um, And you're dealing with a smaller group. Do you find that that's allowed you to be um, more judicious with your time? So spending more time with players or the same amount? And then with that time or bandwidth, how are you improving your craft? Because you are arguably, you know, in the top 1% of the profession, you know, you've made it, but from the conversations we had, I know you don't just sit around and, you know, pat yourself on the back. Well, how, how do you go about using that time productively so that, you know, the version of you in five years is even better than what it is today?
1: Hey, you know, it's crazy. Um, I talked to my boss about this one. Like, sometimes I feel like I know nothing. You know, I, t- I taught a class last semester and that in itself was in a new learning experience for me, um, especially teaching it to people who have no knowledge of strength conditioning and perhaps don't want to be a strength coach. They just are required to take it as part of our APK program. Um, but I think that Learning has to be something that you're really passionate about because if, if you're not learning in this field, you're going to pass, right? Like you mentioned some technologies, but there there's always ways that you can improve. Um, and I, I love just picking up the phone, honestly, which I think is probably uh, unpopular because everyone's just watching videos on YouTube and Instagram. But um, I, will, I will call anybody. I'll listen to a podcast. I'll cold call somebody, email them, um, because if, if they're the ones doing it, I want to learn like, how are you doing it? And maybe that helped me and my athletes. Um you know, just, podcasts, books, um, just, again, just being open to soaking up as much information as possible, whether I'm going to use it or not. It's, it's just fun to learn.
0: Your your humility with how you approach that stuff is really cu- quite impressive, because I find a lot of times it is that delicate balance of being confident, um, but not being cocky, being smart and knowing what you know, but having the humility to say, I know nothing. And I, I kind of find that our top practitioners, regardless of the field or industry, do have this very unique compliment and then a work ethic to, you know, put anybody to shame that just there, you will not outwork me, which is what we preach to our athletes. But then to personify that in your professional life is is really quite incredible. And, and I would ask too, with the stuff that you've learned and the, and the cold calls you've made, what are some of your biggest ahas that you're like, man, I wish I had known that sooner or wow, I really got to change this. um, Because that, that journey, I think for everyone is, can be a little intimidating at first, cause God forbid you've been doing something wrong for five years, 10 years. How have you gone about integrating that into your practice to make yourself better?
1: Uh, I think it all comes back to communication, right? Cause if you can't get somebody to to trust or believe in what you're doing, that's a huge part of it. Um, one example, so from, uh, I worked with a team at Penn and one of the coaches was you know, like really adamant, like are the, all these players have to jump rope. And for me, I'm like, it's making them a better jump rover. It's not helping them with their sports skill. And I remember having said that like to the athlete while the coach was within earshot and sort of undermining what the coach had communicated. So I think that early on, my early on in my career, I, I go back to that and I think, like, is my message the same as the message from the top down? Right. Because I'm I'm one piece of the puzzle and I don't want to be a cog in the wheel, right? We've got to keep this thing moving. Um and if if you want to Definitely move the needle forward. Um, You've got to also be able to take a step back and realize like from a communication standpoint, the messaging has to be the same.
0: Now, did you start that conversation with the coach beforehand? Because I'm 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 laughing too, thinking about some of the wild things like coach, I know you just went to a, a seminar this weekend. So and so's doing it, therefore. So it's this transitive property of A plus B equals C. But you're like, yeah, that school that did that, yeah, they're all on the national team, or that school, the, the context, while good intentions uh, the context isn't necessarily there. How do you not, you know, pull your hair out and just lose your mind? Are you having conversations ahead of time or from that moment that you just mentioned, how would you have handled it differently? Um, you know, moving forward.
1: Yeah. I think it's having, having the conversation with the coach and just being, you know, authentic and saying like, Hey, here's why I don't think this is most advantageous. Here's another thing that we we should consider adding. Um, and I don't think adding is always better. I think if you're going to add something, you've also got to look at taking something out, right? Because again, time is a very uh, finite resource. So um, being able to find the right time to insert yourself and suggest changes, uh, but I, I would never bring a problem without a solution, right? So uh, you don't want to be the person who who isn't looking for for ways to help help improve, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of times we get caught up on the methods and the means, and a lot of sport coaches want their team to do well. And so that's at least the united common ground and finding out through communication relationships. And I'm laughing, too, that you said the uh, coming in with problems. I was one of the first thing I would tell young coaches, if the only time your sport coach interacts with you is when there's a problem, then they're going to not want to talk to you. So how do we set up check-ins, weekly check-ins or summaries or follow-ups, team presentations, things like that to show United Front. Um, And that eliminates a lot of headaches before they even start. But that being said, did you ever have a situation where you went in, lockstep with the team, said everything was good and then a week in the coach flips the script on you and had to deal with that? You know Any of those situations?
1: Yeah, but I think that's part of it, right? Because you've got to be able to adapt. Uh, At the end of the day, like my program is only as good as, you know, it shows up on the field and, or in the the swimming pool. So, you know, if the the coach wants to change something, I just have to be ready and able to adjust. And if not, then that's sort of a shame because, you know, I I want the team to win and be successful. And part of that is understanding, like there are going to be times where my plan doesn't get to run it as, as I wanted it to. And I think that that's just part of it.
0: Yeah, I know. Do you have postmortems with the coaches So at the end of the season where you look back and and kind of do a reflection or is that just more kind of natural and organic throughout the course of the season? Do you make formal times to have kind of recaps and reviews?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. I meet with the lacrosse staff, which includes, you know, all, all of our coaches, our director of ops, um, dietitian, athletic trainer, um, I have somebody who's helping me run catapult technology. But all of us get in one room every Monday. We, you know, look at the week ahead. Um, You know, if we're in season, which we're about to start games in February, we look at upcoming competitions because, again, with a a large roster, not everybody travels. So I have somebody back here that is going to be here to train athletes who don't get on the road with us, um, which makes it a lot easier because we're all all on the same page, right? Meeting once a week allows us to to plan better. Um, And the same thing with swimming. Um, Staff meets and then information is just sort of distributed to everybody on staff.
0: Now, how does swimming work? Because I know that that an all the time, all year round. And typically they don't. That's one of those sports that's a volume issue. They just, again, both on acute and chronic loads, trying to measure that. I don't know if you're tracking anything in the water, but I'd love to hear kind of, you know, from your perspective on training that, because that couldn't be more of a polar opposite than a ground based velocity power kind of sport into, you know, moving through a fluid horizontally uh, for seemingly hours at end. How do you go about approaching uh, training swimmers?
1: Yeah. You know, it's been really fun. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of swim experience coming here and fortunately I took it over from, uh, Matt Delancey who had been here for 17 or 18 years with swimming. Um, so like I said, not trying to reinvent the wheel, I sort of took the plan that he had and ha- have adapted it over my four years here. Uh, and it, it's a lot of fun because swimming, especially at a high level is very skill based. Right. Um, and, the weight room skills, I think transfer, because if you want to be better at cleans, right, if you want to be better at a snatch, it's a really technical movement. So if, if your technique is suffering, right, or if you're not dialed in on the lift, right, you're probably not going to be pressing with the, the weight that you're moving. So I think for me, it does have a, a direct transfer to, hey, the, these numbers are going up and it's a skill and it's helping me improve at my skill in the water. Um, that being said, not everybody comes in with a ton of lifting experience. So it's also really fun to teach. Um, and to see the progression from you know even just the beginning of the fall to the end of this fall semester and then again come back and uh, get into championship season now we're four weeks out from SECs so um definitely individualize a lot for the athletes who will be traveling to championships but um again they, they've earned it because they've had now four months of my following my training plan with different you know adjustments for individuals but pretty cool to see the amount of time that they put in and the, the results that they get Definitely, definitely speak to uh, our sport coaches and the, the scheduling that we have here for consistency, which, you know, if you, if you're not consistent, it's hard to be good, but that's one thing that definitely is taken care of in the swim world.
0: No doubt. And I, I would, I'd love to know, we think about back squat. We think about bench press. We think about some of the main lifts. What is the hierarchy of lifts that transfer? Because I think about the butterfly. Let's be honest. That's weird. You don't normally ever see someone in life do that. That is definitely a movement that is specific to a task demand of a sport. What if you had to make, you know, say your top five transfers? Because I think you'd hit the nail on the head when the athletes need to understand. So what my snatch went up. So what my clean went up, does that make me faster off the wall? Does that make me, you know, enter in the water better or, you know, all the things. And I really do say this from a, having not directly programmed for swimming. If a coach is listening there, what, what are some of the major, you know, transfer lifts?
1: Yeah. for power, definitely cleans and snatches, whether that's from a hang or off blocks. Um, you don't tend to pull from the floor just because I've got some very long athletes, right? So you try to spare the low back a little bit. Um, i think squatting trap or deadlift um in terms of lower body strength and then upper body i'm a big fan of push press uh, and pull-ups so being able to pull your own body weight obviously if you're moving through water and you're not able to have higher strength to weight ratios it's going to show um but i think there are a lot of things that you can do right once you've established sort of a foundation of strength which right now like i said getting towards sec championships i let athletes sort of pick from a, a list of movements that we did, you know, pick your favorite push, pull. Um, there's some movements that will stay consistent. And I think, again, going back to consistency of training and consistent consistency of what we're doing, um, you, you definitely see more success rather than trying to change things all the time.
0: So you sounds like you're talking a lot about the traditional power and some of the compound force production lifts. What about plyometrics? And then specifically energy system demands. Cause again, swimming is unique that you could have a sprint, uh, but then you can also have some of those relays or some of those longer ones where you're actually, I, I think about like a 400 or an 800, where you're in that absolutely heinous zone where, you know, you're, you're meshing the gears between anaerobic and aerobic and, and, and none of it feels good at all. So for someone who's listening that kind of was thinking in those terms, what, what were some of the insights that you've had in that area?
1: Yeah. So our sprinters train the same as our
0: distance swimmer. So if you're
1: swimming the 50 or the mile, um, the program is the same. Right, the, obviously the tonnage and the total weight that you're lifting is gonna be different. skill wise, sprinters tend to mm-hmm. catch on to the, the movements a little bit faster. Um, so I, I lift, the lift three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, and Friday is a little bit more of our athletic day. So we'll do definitely do some plyometrics um, and some turf sprints. And then we just sort of do an upper body circuit, which is always fun for them. And I think with the plyometrics, you, you've gotta be careful not to overdo it, right? Um, so for me, it's just keeping things simple and at an elite level, really, you're only looking at eight to 14 total movements that people are going to do year round. So we stick with pretty much the same movements, um, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday with some very slight deviations, but giving the athletes a choice, um, and being consistent, I think goes a long way.
0: Now, how do you fall into those numbers? Cause I think that's a really good example of just coaching acumen where you've seen it. <clears throat> I know you can read textbooks and research that'll say, one thing or another, but when you hear a practitioner talk about really trying to hone in on those kind of core competencies, what led you to that number? And I'm assuming it's a little bit individualized here, there, but if I had to look across the board, I, I would, I would beg that year over year, you're going to have those same pillars that are kind of the rebar and the concrete and the foundation of the program. How did you settle into those and and, and why?
1: I mean, I think it's like, what what are you going to start your athletes with? They first walk in, what are you going to teach them? right? Some skills take longer to develop if you're going to teach a clean or a snatch, right? Obviously a lot more technical difficulty than say just a, a back squat. Now that is my favorite lift. So I could talk about that for, for days, but um, we don't have that kind of time. So in an effort to be efficient, you know, freshman starts with me and they do the same things Monday, Wednesday, Friday, until we get good at those things, right? And it might be two weeks, it might be three weeks, it might be four weeks, depending on the experience they, they had prior. Um, but at the, the end of the day, like, if I'm going to take things out of a lift, right? If we're very limited on time, what are the things that I'm left with? And that's sort of how I've decided like, okay, these are the things that are my non-negotiables and, you know, everything else is it's sort of secondary.
0: I'm going to ask why you like the squat so much. Cause again, we've, we've covered this a couple of times in the podcast about both the systemic impact, the developmental impact, 244 muscles have to work in perfect symphony to be able to execute it fatigue state you know fresh state all that what what makes you fall on that lift as kind of one of your core core movements
1: uh, i think it's a i mean obviously like having a powerlifting background it's uh one of the movements where like i'm always cautious but say it's my favorite right just because i like it doesn't mean my athletes are going to do it I think there's a time and a place. And I think if you're trying to develop overall strength, right, you get a lot out of the axial loading with squats. It's going to transfer to other movements, depending on what you want to have them do later in your, in your plan. So um, for me, it's just, you, you get a big return on it with not a ton of volume, I should say. Right. Once you've established sort of um, uh, like a general proficiency, it's it's one of those movements where you can grease the groove with it. And, you know, it's sort of like riding a bike.
0: What were some of the strength numbers you look to push towards? Cause I think with any exercise or any movement, there's an effective dose, the minimal, the maximal, and then there's kind of the overdose. And we would try to plot things along a curve. And and as you're alluding to, we're developing one thing doesn't mean we're not doing others. They're just yeah. in developmental phase. So that hopefully by the time we get you strong enough to actually get some return in the Olympic lifts, those weeks prior, you weren't just sitting around. You were you were doing complexes, you were doing something to kind of teach those motor pads, but we're going to layer it on a real foundation because without being strong, a lot of your higher speed and higher power demands really don't respond well to the training. I think of plyometrics. If you can't squat your body weight, trying to do plyometrics is minimal. Yeah, sure. You can jump and skip around, but talking about true adaptation really doesn't occur till you have the prerequisite strength. What did you see for both say for women's lacrosse and then also for swimming are some of those numbers where they really matter both relatively and absolute for weight?
1: Yeah, I think at a certain level, it's, it's going to depend on where you're starting from. Um, you know, I think everybody should be able to squat one and a half times their body weight. And I think depending on where, where you are in your, your, your plan with your athletes, um, you know, they, they might get there fast. They might, it might take them a long time because if they're not moving well, you're not going to load the movement. So you might have to regress before you actually move somebody forward. with like, hey, we're trying to get to this weight. We're trying to move well at whatever weight we can handle.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of times when people think of numbers, it's never at the exclusion of technique and it could be a barrier. It could be a previous injury. It could just be a mental block. I, I did this last time in my, you know, I hurt my back or I, you know, whatever, and, and trying to get an athlete to get through the, that process, go over those hurdles, but then really reap that reward. And I couldn't agree with you more is that a healthy individual, uh, male or female should be able to get to one and a half. And then you can look at the other stuff and you should, but we do it in academics, we do it in finance, we do it in medicine, where there are these kind of prerequisite foundations that you need. But for whatever reason, people skip across that, um, you know, and, and sometimes it's, oh, well, you'll get injured or you don't want to axial load. Well, guess what? If you're going to smash into something or, you know, the first time you've ever put load on your back is in a violent manner, that's typically not a good recipe for success. And I'd I'd love to get your take on how do you walk that line from assuming you're doing it right, you're getting it on board, but you have that coach who's just, man, I am anti-back squat. You know, if you just do single leg work or if you do a trap bar, it's the same thing. How do you explain to kind of a younger coach, the importance of specific lifts within their context?
1: Yeah. I think if you see somebody who's capable of squatting one and a half times their body weight, they're also going to be stronger given whatever single leg movement you program. So um, just that fact alone. Right. I think again, and, and, take time into consideration you can only program so many lower body movements right so what again is going to give you the biggest return um not that the squat is exclusively the lift that you should go to um but there are other options yeah i think i think keep it
0: simple and what would you say too, from a conditioning standpoint, you, you mentioned that kind of threshold and squat, but then also in conditioning, do you have any kind of go-to benchmarks or milestones that you look for either from a minimal standpoint or a targeted goal for conditioning for either of your sports?
1: Uh, for conditioning for swim, I don't have anything really to do with that. I do handle the dryland workouts. So, um, you know, dryland is essentially just conditioning for swimming. I've been trying to change it to conditioning, right? So it'll call it wetland, but I haven't won on that yet. Um, and I think they, the sport takes care of that, right? They're in the pool nine practices a week. They're with me five days a week. Um, so whatever I'm doing from a conditioning standpoint, we're really just trying to push that lactate threshold. So when they're at the end of a race, at the end of a five day swim meet, they know that they've got more in the tank. Um, with cross, it's a little bit different, obviously field sport. Um, we do do two conditioning tests. So the the Manchester United or the Man U, which is essentially 2200s, so you've got, you know, 25 seconds to make it down 100 yards. You've got the remaining 35 seconds recovery jog back with first 10. And then the sprint time it gets a second faster for each of the following sprints. Um, so full completion of that would be 20 minutes. Um, and then we also t- I time five 300s using the restraining line. So 30 yards and back, uh, looking for an average of 63 seconds or less with two minutes rest between reps.
0: Now, do you find that that is, Um, just a traditional test that everybody kind of goes to, or is that being confirmed by, you mentioned you use GPS and you've seen some of that. Is that the reason why those tests are in is that they do kind of correlate and align with the performances you've seen on the field? Because I know those tests have been around much longer than GPS, but this is a great example, like you said, where keep it simple, but if you can have technologies to reaffirm or or confirm what you're doing, have you seen that be the case in those conditioning tests? Yeah, so
1: the menu we had
0: was used before
1: I got here. I had the 300s knowing the applicability to lacrosse uh, and we are using Catapult technology, but our first this is our first full year with it. So we, we use it in the fall, um, still again, getting used to it and seeing where we can actually um, use the numbers in a, in a way, meaningful way. And I think really the, the ultimate goal with the use of Catapult is to be able to present to coaches like, hey, here are drills that are really taxing here are sort of drills that are a a moderate amount of of demand. And then here are drills that are um, pretty, pretty easy. So when it comes time to practice plan, especially in season, our coaches have an idea of like, Hey, these drills sort of like crush them, uh, maybe dial it back leading up to games. But with the conditioning test, we haven't really seen any correlation yet, uh, but hoping to get there.
0: Yeah. I think it was fascinating for us to realize just how far off, We were on cumulative volume, but then specifically on, you know, the IMUs of getting in and out of the breaks and then finding a very specific set of patterns of whether it's a 30-yard shuttle, a cut 85, 60-yard shuttle, all these different movements that really that's what separates them. So, yeah, I could have had them run for longer. I could have had them do things, Um, but in both instances for the teams that I worked with was really dialing into what movements need to be repetitive, but then result into some sort of offensive or defensive outcome. Uh, that the coach can then see. So that will be really cool. We'll have to get you back on once you uh, collect a little bit more data in that. And uh, I think that'll be definitely a cool case study for you guys to, to do this season.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. Now I wanna ask, moving into the next phase of your career here, you've already alluded to it, that you are a professor. so you're teaching. And I think that's super important because often we do get a lot of individuals that graduate and they got it all figured out. And they're gonna tell you they got their CSCS, they're excited, um, they want to try everything in the book. Um, and we always joke about that that what is it the dunning-kruger effect of I know everything, I know nothing and yeah. the Valley of despair. How do you go about approaching that because you do it? I think it's very hard to find practitioners that are truly doing it at the highest level, but then to also have a professor that can speak to you in classroom terms because I do think classroom fundamentals is super, super important, but that transitive time from classroom to competence, could be anywhere between 500 and 800 hours of floor time. Or as you mentioned in powerlifting, I'm sure you've seen a lot of individuals that have decades on the floor. How do you shepherd that journey? And and what do you look forward to most when working with a new, with a new coach?
1: Man, that's a good question. Um, I think just a willingness to learn, right? Um, It's great that you get your CSCS. That's just to get your foot in the door. Um, There are a lot of other certifications and just because coaches have them doesn't, mean they you know have all of the answers uh i think getting exposure to a lot of sports you know where might have been unpopular like oh ivy league has you know equestrian and fencing and all these non-traditional sports but you really get exposed to what different athletes are are used to what they think helps them um and again going back to like see what your athletes have done in the past see what your coaches have done in the past uh if you don't know what happened in the past it's sort of hard to predict and plan for the future. So I think getting a good sense of like where you've been to know where you want to go, uh, it definitely, definitely helps. And I think a lot of younger coaches have this idea that like, oh, I'm going to intern, you know, my, my path was more linear than most. I haven't jumped around a bit, but, uh, I think it's also being where your feet are, you know, don't, don't always be looking for the next spot, you know, have be fully committed to whatever you're doing, right. Instead of one foot out the door.
0: I want to go into that. What do you mean by being where your feet are at? Because I do think that is something unique to the Instagram generation where you do, you kind of hit on it there a little bit of I'm here, but I'm not. I'm here, but I'm looking and knowing that, you know, just because you got a $5,000 raise from 15,000 to 20,000, what do you mean by that? Because I think that's a very, very important thing that listeners need to understand.
1: Yeah, I think the better, I I hate to say better, but coaches who have a history of success, they've been in a place for a long time and they've, established a a plan that works for them and their situation where, you know, you can repeat that and be consistent, which is hard to do. And if you're constantly jumping around, you don't get to see whether or not your, your plan will actually work. Right. Because you've spent two years sort of developing and sort of, you know, impacting a culture in a way that is productive. And if you, if you don't see it play out, you don't know whether or not, you know, the success is partially because you've contributed for a longer period of time or because, um, of other factors, but I think that's one of the best things in seeing. you know, four years, goes by fast and it's not slowing down. So, uh, if you can make an impact in that short amount of time, uh, it's pretty, pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of individuals really don't understand about just how long it takes for the parts of the craft to grow. And, and you may not like it, you may get five years into it. And then that's just like an athlete, either all in or out and finding that comfort zone. And the nice thing now is that we don't just have one avenue in performance and especially too with technologies and new titles being made, you know, seemingly every week, um, understanding where you fit in that role and making sure that you leave it better than you found it. And that's kind of, I think to your point about make a difference, make an impact, but also if you're going to do it, go all in and make sure that you understand. Because I think the athletes see your authenticity. They, They can tell when, you are team number five, like you mentioned, the equestrian team, is there a drop off between them and rugby and baseball and softball? Or are they getting that same product? And, you know, being able to almost go on stage as a coach, you know, in general, I'm sure in your personal life, you know, you're not screaming and yelling, getting fired up, like there's a lot of adrenaline you have to do to be on stage, and it's exhausting. And you have to have that kind of professional endurance to be able to do it. And if you're not fully locked in, that becomes really, really hard. And if coaches you know, or other athletes see that you're faking it, I think it only erodes at your credibility. Exactly. Now, if you can go talk to yourself, you can go in a time machine and go back to, you know, when you first started, your bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I wanna do this. And you gotta have a sit-down, one of those sit-down conversations with yourself. What do you go and tell yourself?
1: I think just be patient uh, and and get more sleep and try to manage stress better earlier on, right? like I said, when I was at Penn, I had other jobs. You know, I worked for a lacrosse club team. Uh, I, you know, was getting my master's full time. Like I, there was always two or three things that I was juggling along to along with coaching. Uh, and I, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to be really successful at all of it. Um, and you know, in in some ways it, it helped because it led me to where I am today. But at the same time, you know, you've got to take a step back and make sure that you know you're. You're not overloaded. Yeah, I was. I was the uh, say yes to everything person, and I finally am at a place where now I can say no to some things, which is nice. Um, but you know, you've, you've got to sort of plan plan for what you want. And I knew this was what I wanted, so I'm happy to be be where I'm at.
0: What are some of the things that you do to manage stress? Because I know you didn't get to this spot, and now it's all kumbaya and great. I'm sure you, the the stresses and the demands of your position are pretty intense but it seems like you, you've come up with a strategy that that's worked and you would tell your younger self to develop it. But what are some of those strategies that have worked and you currently use?
1: Yeah. You know, it's uh, I training has always been an outlet for me. Um, I, I left it this morning at 5.00 AM before on my team. So, you know, the, the time that I have that is free, I try to try to get away and use it, whether it's for different competitive outlets, uh, reading, just driving somewhere and picking up the phone and calling somebody. But, um, knowing that when I'm not here, right. Or if I'm not with athletes and teams, you know, just, it's okay to like clock out and go do something fun.
0: What are some of those things? Cause I know a lot of people will ask a strength coach, what do you do for fun? And they're like, uh, I lift, I have no fun. I just, I work around the clock, but I do think that you, especially post post COVID time, I think it's important that some of these areas that people were missing, just even integrating it a little bit, not only makes you a better person, it makes you a better professional but what are some of those things that you do when you're not inside the weight room or, you know, at the rack, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Um, I love to travel, which I can only do limited times of the year, obviously. Um, But I've met one of my sisters in Montreal for a comedy festival this summer. Um, I do, I like life skills. Um, So I do some competition, firearm shooting. Yeah. I just, I I think, you know, reading, I don't have a ton of uh, non Uh, athletic activity hobbies, I guess. You know, I also train Muay Thai on the side. It does all sort of stem from training for me.
0: It's interesting. You keep falling back into the knowledge transfer component. So it seems like whether it's firearms, Muay Thai, there is something about being around experts in another field and just seeing how they communicate. I know in our previous conversation, I mentioned to you of training canines. So Mm -hmm. pretty cool. I've trained humans for a while, but how do you take an eight week old puppy and teach them how to alert on blood sugar? What's that like? Everything from teaching them how to go potty to being able to go across 120 lockers and find that blood sugar. And then, you know, finding out now, um, you know, he'll graduate from the program that there's an individual, uh, she has a medical uh, disorder that the dog can smell that dog. Now from training, just like we would an off season for an athlete, that dog will be tasked for the next 10 to 12 years, Um, to be a lifeline and to be a full-on service dog and so to be able to learn that process I thought was fascinating and I think it does when you get exposure to that it changes the way you work with athletes it changes the way you communicate I know for me I get a lot slower I read body language I think early on how do you feel I feel good what do you mean good old version of me would have just rolled through it but when the canines you have to start picking up their body language because you know if they had thumbs they would do it themselves and if they could talk they would tell you off so being able to learn how to read that really made an impact, and and you know all things. So these super focused uh, knowledge transfer skill sets, I think, have huge applicability. So that's super cool. Well, I, I could keep you on for for hours talking about this stuff. I know we've got a lot of listeners around the world that like to reach out. What is the best way for someone to get a hold of you if they've got a question or they just want to touch base or even just talk shop? What's the best contact for you?
1: Probably email. Um, My email is Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y-Z at gators.ufl.edu.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And good luck with this upcoming season. And we'll be sure to have you back on here this summer uh, after the season. Thank you so much. Thanks, Coach. Yep.